Now let's ask God to speak to us through his word. Let's pray together the words of another older hymn. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou didst break the bread beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit longs for thee, thou living word. O send thy spirit, Lord, now unto me, that he may touch my eyes and make me see. Show me the truth concealed within thy word and in thy book revealed. I see thee, Lord. Amen. Many years ago, during my undergraduate days at the University of Sheffield, I was challenged by a slogan that I heard at a meeting. The slogan was, 2,000 tongues to go. And I discovered that there were 2,000 people groups, at least in the world, who didn't have a single word of the Bible in their own language. And so immediately after graduating, I embarked on a training program to equip me to become a Bible translator. It was a very different scenario from university, not least because it was held at the headquarters of Wycliffe Bible Translators on an old army camp in deepest Surrey, sleeping in barracks with 25 people in one long room. Uh, the studies also were very different. Two intensive three-month courses which would have taken you, they reckon, a year at university in three months. However, after completing both of them, I was deemed fit and accepted to be a Bible translator. Having been taught how to reduce an unwritten language to writing, how to prepare an alphabet for it, how to analyse the grammatical structure, understand the way that people act, react and think, and eventually translate the Bible from this language, from the original languages, into this particular language. Now, there was kind of a problem with this training. A lot of what you learn wasn't really needed for many years. On average, it used to take, it's coming down slightly because of computers, technology and other things, but it used to take at least 10 years of study of the language before you could actually begin the translation work. Now, you think all that you learned 10 years ago about how to do Bible translation was completely forgotten by the time you arrived and had to actually do it. And nowadays, and I'm still involved in this, as most of you know, as a board member of British Wycliffe, uh, we've adopted what I think is a much more sensible approach. It's called just-in-time training, which means what it says. You are taught what you need when you need it. So, for example, you learn how to reduce the language to writing, you go out to a situation, some part of the world, you work on it for some months, a couple of years maybe, finish that, and then you do some more training to help you with the next stage, understanding how the language fits together, and so on. Now, there is nothing new about such a, an approach, and I would suggest to you, it was the same kind of approach that Jesus, the master teacher, used as he instructed the twelve men he had chosen as his apprentices. And in our last study in Mark's Gospel, in our series Following Jesus, we saw that Jesus sent out these twelve, uh, what are called apostles. The word apostle is a literal translation of a Greek word which means to send. They were sent out. 
on that first mission, even though their training was by no means complete, and there were lots of things they still didn't understand very clearly. And in his account, Mark records their success. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. And then they returned and reported back to Jesus on their mission. Mark 6, verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus, reported to him all they had done and taught. I'm sure they were excited by what had happened, and thrilled with the response of the people, and the ability to heal people and cast out demons. But Jesus knows, even though they may not yet realize it, that their training is not yet completed. Uh, John Calvin comments, having discharged a temporary commission, they went back to school to make greater advances in learning. And now today we see that Jesus, as it were, sets them two further challenges. He puts them in two challenging situations. The first is to feed a vast crowd of people. Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat, a hungry crowd. And the second situation which challenges them is a personal one, to cross the Lake of Galilee in the face of a headwind, a strong prevailing wind. And we see in these stories, in both cases, they fail the test. Two failures. The first reveals a lack of resources. The second reveals a lack of progress. But each situation in which they fail is met by Jesus by an amazing miracle. Two miracles. The feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water. Now the important point is what the disciples, the students, and we are meant to learn from this. What lesson is Jesus the teacher trying to communicate? Although there are two situations and two miracles, there is in fact only one lesson. How do we know that? Because Mark concludes the account of the second miracle, Jesus walking on the water, by saying they were completely amazed when Jesus steps in the boat and the wind dies down. They were completely amazed. Why? For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now, that's very surprising, is it not? You might expect Mark to say they were completely amazed because they had not understood about the stilling of the storm that previous situation where they'd found themselves in a life-threatening storm with Jesus asleep in the boat and Jesus had got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and they died down and they got safely to shore. That's what you might expect. But no. Jesus compared, Mark in his Gospel, compares, this is very important, the miracle of Jesus walking on the water with the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He says the key to understanding the second miracle is to understand the first miracle. There is only one miracle, one message, one lesson, which the first miracle teaches and the second miracle reinforces. The question is whether we, like the disciples, fail to understand the meaning of the miracle, which is our topic this morning. So let's try with the help of the Holy Spirit as we look more closely at the passage. It will help to have the Bible if you've not already got it open. Mark 6, 30 to 56. Uh, there are Bibles in the pews. If you just reach over for one, it's page 1009. I want to look at each miracle in turn 
focusing especially on the first is the key to understanding the second. Feeding the 5,000. Jesus recognizes that the apostles need a break, not only after their physically and spiritually draining mission, but also because of the physical demands of the constant crowds that pressed around them. So great that they didn't even have a chance to eat. And so he says, verse 31, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Any follower of Jesus needs to heed those words. But any follower of Jesus will soon learn and find that sometimes you cannot escape the demands of people so easily. And it's my experience that it's often when our resources are physically at their lowest that the demands of people come at their greatest. However, it is also true that when that happens, we are far more likely to admit our need and prove the power of Christ. That power, which the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, is made perfect in our weaknesses. Maybe that's your situation this morning. Can I say as we go through this series, if there are particular things that we don't even develop that God speaks to you about, just make a little note of them and reflect on them later in the day or before you go to bed tonight. Because in a message like this, there are all sorts of things that God says and it's important we don't miss what God is saying uh, to us. So Jesus and his disciples head off for a solitary place somewhere across the lake in their boat. But they discover when they arrive there that the crowds have already preceded them. One writer says, Galilee is so small and the boat's so minute that a crowd by land could easily reach their destination more quickly than the sailors. When I finally got into Bible translation, in fact much later, we lived in a village called Foba, uh, about 20 miles east of Joss in a bush village way out in the sticks in a mud house with two small children the five. It was, it, was a, it was a very interesting time. We were writing down this alphabet of this language for the very first time. And although it was a challenging thing, I'll tell you what the greatest challenge was, a complete lack of privacy. Because everybody was on show, and we were particularly on show, living in the middle of this village with all the people. So we, after a while you just thought, I've just got to get away from here. Eventually, someone kindly provided us with a little car. And so when we got the car, we said, this is our chance. We're going to get away to a quiet place. And we knew there was a river about four or five miles away. We could manage just about to drive on this VW Beetle down this dirt track to this remote place, to this, this, this river. And just we took a picnic with us and everything. And it was a big escape, you know. And we drove down the road and we stopped the car and we, we climbed down to this river. And still pictures in my mind's eye. And what I can also picture after ten minutes was all the people popping up behind the bushes and the... And, and the rocks. <laughs> there was no escape. <laughs> so it was for the disciples of Jesus. And the needs of the disciples and Jesus are superseded by the needs of the crowd. Look what he says in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus, it says, sees people as sheep without a shepherd. It's a phrase that comes from the Old Testament in the history of the people of Israel, especially at times when they strayed away from God like lost sheep or when they lacked leadership. And the response of Jesus, like that of his father, is one of compassion. The word used compassion here of Jesus is a very strong word. In fact, it's only used in the Gospels of Jesus himself 
in his response to human need and in parables that Jesus taught that expresses that need. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? And when the Samaritan came by and saw the man lying by the roadside, he had compassion on him. That's the word used there. It's the word used in this parable of the prodigal son when the son finally returns home and when his father sees him, he had compassion on him and ran to meet him and wrapped his arms around him. Well, that's the kind of expression that's used here. But the word is not just a word of mere sentiment. You know, you feel really bad about something. It's a word that expresses itself, one writer says, in active assistance. And that active assistance is shown by Jesus in giving the sheep that which will meet their deepest need. Notice what it says. He fed them on God's word. He taught them many things. Now, as we read this story, it's important to notice there are echoes of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we might call Old Testament in our terminology, echoes. Uh, The first is the picture of the Lord as the shepherd of his people. And even if you've never been to church before and know little about the Bible, you probably know or have heard uh, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm of David expressing, David was a shepherd, and he says, The Lord is like my shepherd, he cares for me. It's a picture of the Lord, the shepherd who cares for his people. And the shepherd feeds his flock, and Jesus feeds the hungry crowd with what they need the most, by teaching them many things, verse 34. Probably, uh, and this is not just a, a plea by a preacher, it probably means teaching them at great length. By late afternoon, the disciples become concerned. And I would imagine, if you've been in their shoes, probably not a bit irritated and exhausted by all that's gone on. And they're concerned that this great crowd of people have not had any food to eat, any physical food. So they make their concerns known to Jesus. They say, this is a remote place. It's already very late. Here's our strategy. Send the people away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And now, Jesus presents them with this challenge. One which seems to them ridiculous and impossible. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Now, especially, just take into account here, that the two neighbouring towns of Capernaum and Bethsaida, their total population at this time was around 5,000 people. And here we have 5,000 men, plus women and children, could well be double that number of people. A vast crowd. So Jesus says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they go and find out, and they say, five loaves and two fishes. Of course, it wasn't sliced bread. It was the flat loaves of unleavened bread they used in those days. And it certainly wasn't, take it from me as a fisherman, it certainly wasn't two rainbow trout that the children had. (laughs) They were dried, salted fish that people took with them uh, in their baskets. And they're totally inadequate for the crowd. And of course the point is, this is what Jesus wants them to acknowledge. That their resources are totally inadequate and then they will prove that his resources are more than enough and left over. Uh, David Hewitt, in commentary on Mark, which is well worth reading, says, it is as if Jesus puts them in a situation where they cannot cope in order that they might learn again their total dependence upon him. They had been telling Jesus what to do, but now he brings them back into service as waiters. Let me just say that you might be in that situation this morning. A situation where you cannot cope. And maybe a situation where you're being asked to help someone else or some other needy situation where you just have no resources and you don't know what to do. 
the Lord sometimes puts us in those situations so that we might learn to trust Him and prove His power in a way that we never would when we can cope when we've got all the resources we need and we're on top physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. So Jesus directs the disciples to organize the crowds in rows. Uh, the children read uh, something from the message about the, the people being like bunches of wildflowers on the green grass, which is a nice picture. But in actual fact, the word rows there is a word used from gardening and farming. It's to do with straight rows that you plant things in in rows of hundreds and fifties. Then he takes the bread and fish and gives thanks to God, probably using the traditional Jewish grace. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the world, who bringest forth fruit from the earth. Finally, he hands the food to the disciples who distribute it to the seated people. And the result is, verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. The baskets were the traditional little wicker baskets that people carried in those days. Probably the reason there were twelve is because there were twelve apostles and each took their own basket and filled it to the full. Now, there have been many attempts made to explain away this miracle. I have to say this is the only time, it's because of this miracle, the only occasion in which I was thrown out of a class in school. Uh, when the teacher suggested in the scripture lesson um, he said well what happened here was that the small boy who John tells us was the one who provided the five loaves and the two fish brought out his sandwiches you know his, his pieces were saying stuff like and uh, all the other people who got their sandwiches were very embarrassed so they all decided to share and the message about this is that Christians ought to be people who share with one another well I must have had a very inane grin on my face the teacher said boy what are you laughing at and I just simply said which was probably rude of me I just said sir I found that more difficult to believe than the miracle and he said out boy and I was out of the class for the only time in my life other people suggest there were rich pious you, you can read all this kind of this is what scholars spend their time studying how to get around what the Bible says but uh, some scholars not all I hasten to add uh, some say there were rich pious women who followed and supported Jesus and learned from him his itinerary and route and went ahead and made food drops all of these explanations and many more and I won't bore you with all the rest are more difficult to believe than the clear message that the Gospels give that Jesus performed a miracle. The question is, why? This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And we'll see later in our studies, there's another miracle, a similar one, of the feeding of the 4,000. What is the lesson that the disciples and we are meant to learn? Well, this miracle, like all the miracles of Jesus, is meant to be a vital clue to his identity. If the hints if the echo from the Old Testament about the shepherd is, is maybe a, a somewhat faint one, there is a much stronger echo here, a loud one, which the disciples ought to have known and recognised. The story of God who provides for his people. You'll find the story in Exodus 16, and you can read it for yourself. It's the story of how God gave manna in the wilderness when the vast company of the Israelites, maybe a million people, had nothing to eat. And God sent them, as it were, bread from heaven. Uh, even the terminology Mark uses here reflects this. 
he uses the word literally desert three times the NIV translates it quiet place, solitary place, remote place but the word is desert or deserted place reflecting the deserted area that the Israelites travelled through and even the description of them being organised into rows is a picture of how the Israelites when they marched and when they stopped they were organised properly in 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 a strategic way in rows of people In John's account, this miracle is followed by Jesus teaching them and he directly compares this. He says, the giving of Moses, who was their leader who gave you this manna, is a picture of what I am doing here. I tell you the truth, John 6, 32. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people then say, well, give us this bread. We'd love to have some. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. So what is the meaning of the miracle? The meaning of the miracle is, Jesus is the Lord. He is the Son of God, for whom nothing is impossible. You see, if you've got a problem with miracles, you've got a problem with God. If there is a God who brought the world into being as his word, who sustains all things by the word of his power, then nothing is impossible for him. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, then he is the one who provided for his people in the past. When David said, the Lord is my shepherd, Jesus, as it were, is saying, the Lord Jesus, I am your shepherd. When God gives bread from heaven, Jesus is the one, the Son of God, who gives food for a hungry world, the one who will eventually lay down his life for his sheep. And we focus on that in the bread and the wine. Unfortunately, all the crowds are interested in is the bread and maybe the excitement of a miracle. They don't see who Jesus is. Even more tragically, neither do the disciples at this point. So look now more briefly at the second miracle which follows straight on its heels, walking on the water, verses 45 to 52. As soon as the leftovers are gathered up, we read that Jesus, and it's a very strong word, Jesus made his disciples, he urged them to go ahead of him into Bethsaida. He said to them, get into the boat and cross over. We don't know the reason for the urgency. Uh, John's Gospel records that after the miracle, the people wanted to make Jesus their king. And knowing this, he withdrew at the mountain to pray and asked the Father to keep him on track because that wasn't the kind of king he wanted to be. Maybe Jesus knew that the disciples, if they heard that kind of thing, would have been taken in by the enthusiasm of the crowd. But there's a stronger reason. Jesus wanted to place his pupils in another testing situation to see if they'd got the point, the meaning of the miracle. David Hewitt again comments helpfully. It was Jesus' idea on the sea, reminding us again that the storms we encounter are not necessarily an indication that we're outside of the will of God. I mean, maybe you're in that kind of situation like the disciples, where you're straining at the oars, metaphorically, doing all you can and you just don't seem to be getting anywhere. And you think, I must be making a mistake somewhere. I should just put the oars down and let the boat drift me and take me where, where it will. No, maybe God has planned this in your life for a purpose that you might prove and experience his presence in a very special way that you never have before. Now, this is what is going to happen to the disciples. The shepherd sometimes leads the flock on the green grass. Sometimes they go through dark valleys and stormy seas. Yet still he is with them. 
and with us. We can't be sure exactly where the trip started, but the intended destination was the small town of Bethsaida on the northern shore of Galilee. And what should have been a short journey of an hour or two at the most becomes one lasting for many hours. The reason was this strong headwind which meant the disciples couldn't make any progress. Even though they were straining at the oars, it's a word, the word straining, the Greek word, is a word of intense activity. It's actually the same word used in the healing of the demoniac. You know, the demon-possessed man we looked at a few weeks ago uh, when he said to Jesus, have you come to torment me? It's, it's the same word, torment, they're straining. They're doing all they can, they're making no progress. The previous situation had exposed their lack of resources. This shows they have no strength, no ability to make any progress. Probably wasn't a life threatening situation like the storm. It's just one of those very frustrating situations. If you're a Christian and been a Christian for any length of time, you will know what the disciples felt like. There are times in your life when you just feel, no matter how you try, no matter how much effort you make, no matter how much you strain and put every effort into the Lord's work, you just don't seem to be getting anywhere. If you've not experienced that as a Christian, make a mental note because you will at some time. I can be almost sure. Now, Jesus, high on the hillside, above the lake, if you've been to Israel, you'll know the kind of situation and and, that you can see down onto the lake. He sees the tiny boat, and around the fourth watch of the night, this is Roman reckoning between three and six in the early morning, went out to them, walking on the lake. Now again, there have been many people who try to explain that this doesn't mean what it says it means. The most popular is that the disciples were straining at the oars and they were just driven closer and closer to shore and Jesus was walking along on the beach and in the moonlight or maybe splashing in the surf they got a mistake and he wasn't really walking on the water he was just walking alongside the the edge of the lake. And uh, that's very unlikely. These men in the boat are experienced sailors. They know Galilee. It's unlikely that he made a mistake which filled them with terror. Uh, the clear meaning of the text, which again, like the previous story, carries the marks of an eyewitness account, was that Jesus was walking on the water. Now again, the real question is not what he did, but why he did it. Was it some kind of trick to impress the disciples? If so, it wasn't a very good one, because instead of impressing them, it terrified them. No, what it is meant to show them is the same message as the previous miracle that Jesus is the Lord. And in particular, he's not only the Lord of the land, he's also the Lord of the sea. Uh, Treading the sea is something that only God can do. And if they'd known their Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, the disciples should have known that. Job says of God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So by walking on the water, Jesus is showing the disciples who he is. That he can do that, which only God can do. It's a place of revelation. What is surprising is where it occurs, this revelation of Jesus. Um, Most appearances of God are on high mountains where visibility is clear. For the Jews, the sea was a place of terror and death, a frightening place. And Jesus is showing them that he is still Lord at sea level, as it were, on the sea itself. And therefore, just the sight of his glorious presence should have been enough to reassure them This probably accounts for the very puzzling expression if you've got your Bible in verse 48. Uh, The NIV softens it to he was about to pass them by. The word literally is Jesus intended to pass them by. 
He didn't intend to get in the boat. He just intended to walk by. And you ask, well, why? Well, he's trying to teach them a lesson. He was with them in the boat and they were safe. He was with them outside of the boat, walking alongside them. He's preparing them for the eventual distancing of himself from them, learning that he is still Lord with them in their situations and with us in ours. However, the disciples fail to see who Jesus is. Instead, they think he's a ghost. Some people report there was a tradition about this time uh, that the last thing a boatman that was about to drown saw on Galilee was a ghost, and maybe that's what they thought they saw. And so they cry out in terror, and Jesus responds by speaking words of reassurance. He says, take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. And as he climbs into the boat with them, the wind dies down. Now, as before in Israel's history, especially the crossing of the Red Sea, the sea is also a place of salvation. But the disciples have missed the point. They fail to learn. In fact, the words Jesus uses are a very strong clue. He says literally, it is I. The word used of the divine revelation, the name of God. I am. I'm he. Couldn't be louder and clearer. Yet still they're missing the, me- missing the meaning of the miracle. Another writer in the Bible Speaks Today series, Donald English, comments, For them it seems the penny had not dropped. They still treat each miraculous event as self-contained. Now let me say here, often do we not do the same. I was challenging the elders and myself the other week when we met together for prayer. We were rejoicing that the Lord, most of you know it's still on the thing on the back of the bulletin, that we we launched this appeal for Nidri for £600,000. And I must be absolutely honest and say I'm just astounded how the Lord has provided through you as people and in a wonderful way we're only £18,000 short £582,000 in two or three months not huge big gifts I think around about 350 people have given and if you want to make up the extra 18 that would be even greater but that's not the point of what I'm saying here the point I was saying to the elders is now can we transfer what we have learnt about God and his son Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit from this experience in Nidri to the fresh challenges that face us as a church? Or do we just say, well, that happened there, but it has no bearing on what God wants to do now? Of course he does, because he's the same God. He's the same Jesus, the same yesterday, today and forever. The Holy Spirit is still the same today. So can we not trust God for greater miracles? I have to be honest, no. We say, well, that happened at Nidri, but that's somehow unrelated to what is happening now. You see, when God acts, it is to prove to us who he is, that he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.20. The point is, can we transfer that? Many of you, if you've, and again, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, look back on the experiences where God has proved himself to you. Are there not many? And yet, isn't it not strange that somehow we can't transfer what we've learned in one experience another experience we just got for £600,000 and in a year's time we remember that there was a, a revival in this church a hundred years ago and a thousand people came to faith every year for succeeding quite a few succeeding years I say can we trust God for 600 conversions next year I, I don't have any little reason for choosing that number I just say uh, and if this was an auction of faith, I guess there'd be someone shout out, I'll go for six. And I uh, hope Ian up there would perhaps shout 60 or 600, I don't know. But, but 
Do we have the faith to believe that God can still do it? I always say that was a hundred years ago in Charlotte Chapel. It's different. Well, things are different, yeah. But God is the same. Sin is the same. Can we not transfer the meaning? The meaning is that Jesus is still the same. The Lord of every situation. Now, that's the challenge for us. In every, and whatever crisis you are facing at this present time, a personal crisis, can you transfer that into the present? Say, God did it in the past. What he did in the past proves to me that he'll do it in the present. You see, every miracle of Jesus has the same one meaning. Uh, John, in his Gospel, as you know, John selects seven miracles of Jesus called signs, he calls them, because they're significant. And he chooses them, and at the end of his Gospel he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which I've not recorded in this book. But I've written these ones down, that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Yet the disciples, including John, who wrote this, at this time did not understand it. Notice this key verse, they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. Now briefly in conclusion, look how the story ends. The disciples finally land, not at Bethsaida, but at Gennesaret, a little bit along the coast, probably they were blown off course by all that had happened. And as soon as they land, they are met by the local people, and we read, because Jesus' fame had preceded him in the whole area, that they recognised Jesus. But it seems, as you read the account, they only recognise him as a healer, a miracle worker. As he travels around the region, they bring their sick people out, even begging to be allowed to touch the tassel of the robe that Jesus, like all Jewish men, wore on the hem of his garments. And Jesus, Mark records, graciously heals them all, but there is no record of teaching and preaching or of any deeper recognition of who Jesus is. Yes, there are many miracles, but these people do not understand the meaning of the miracle. They do not really learn what they are meant to teach. They do not recognize who Jesus is. To them, Jesus is a miracle worker, a healer, and nothing more. Now, the question is for us, is whether we are any different. What about me? What about you? Is Jesus just someone you admire because of the record of the wonderful things he did and the amazing things he taught? Maybe, even though you're not a Christian, you've cried out to God in the past and maybe cried out to Jesus and asked him to help you and he's sorted out some particular issue in your life. Maybe your marriage needs putting back together. Maybe you're in a financial crisis. Maybe you're facing a bereavement or a problem, whatever it might have been. And God answered graciously to you and you can't deny that. But it's not enough. Have you ever recognised and acknowledged who he is, that Jesus is the Lord who demands your total allegiance? That's the meaning of the miracle, of any miracle. Is Jesus a panacea for your problems, or is he the saviour of your sins, the Lord of your life? That is a great danger in these verses, and I leave it with you, as I have to do as a warning. And it's this. That unless you respond to Jesus and what he does and what you hear of him as you hear his word, unless you respond in faith and belief, then every time you refuse to respond, your heart becomes hardened. And it's easier to turn away the next time. 
you can prove this experimentally but don't do it because it's a disastrous step to take book of Proverbs 29 is the first verse says he who hardeneth his heart his neck often will suddenly be cut off and that without remedy it says if you don't do anything the government is telling us this week we need to do more exercise or we'll die early I tell you this we need to respond to God's word in faith otherwise there will be a hardening of your spiritual arteries and one day you'll have a spiritual heart attack and then it will be too late don't harden your heart respond to what he's saying in his word here let's just pray together